there. Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 40th episode. Yay! Yay. With me, Nicholas Beryl-Lumlad, and... With me cheering on from the sidelines, Richard Allen. Yes, yes perfect, perfect. We need, we need all the cheering we can get, as long as it's, it's distributed and decentralized. So yeah. um, for this particular session, we said we would discuss um, a traditional text again. And we would talk not just about the text, but sort of the whole, uh, the whole architecture of thought that this text is a part of, which is, and the text we, we had been talking about and the, the question was the cathedral and the bazaar do you want to introduce the text yeah. and just generally talk about it yeah th- this is um an essay which was given as a talk by a guy called eric s raymond back in 1997 so actually i was just looking at it and it was uh, i was busy getting getting elected in politics at the time this was being made in in may 1997 um and then was later turned into a book by o'reilly which is a, a very a famous publisher particularly around the world of open source and it and it's sort of one of those uh, i mean defining text in the sense that it provides a really interesting commentary on open source software development from somebody who's heavily involved in that and in particular it provides commentary on on a thing called linux or actually nicholas linux linux where, where do you fall on on this i, I fall on the i, I actually say linux You're although linux. it's although it's linus who actually so i would say linus i wouldn't say linus i would say linus yeah. rather than so I, i'm i guess i'm i'm very eclectic on this yes okay, <laughs> yeah so we got a guy called linus torvalds who is a, a swedish speaking finn um was responsible for developing a, a a new version, effectively, of, of some software that had been around for a while, an operating system called Unix, and he developed this sort of very, very significant version of it. And really, this essay that Eric S. Raymond wrote was sort of commenting on the success of that. In 1997, you, you could see at that point that this thing called Linux was turning out to be a huge success, and he was reflecting on why that would be and, and how it is that you know all of these great big corporations have been building these... Uh, operating systems and somebody had come along and built one that effectively does the similar thing but was able to do that in, in very uh, quick fashion and in a way that's they say turned out to be hugely successful so that's what the essay is at its heart and, and it's a, a set of reflections from an open source software developer on how open source software is developed he references a project he was working on something called fetchmail which again is is well known to people who who sort of work in internet circles because they they use it as part of their in uh, they're setting up their mail servers um so this guy that's what he's writing about in this essay Yes, and it, it goes to a much deeper question that's really interesting about the internet technology, and that is the there's like a production mode here uh, that seems to be quite novel. Uh, and you will find other people who write about this too. You'll find Johail Benkler who writes about the wealth of networks and how networks sort of produce things and produce value in an entirely new way. You have um, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you have people like David Post who wrote In Search of Jefferson's Moose, um, uh, and I think Jeff, you know, Paul Post makes the point that. We have no other system that we have invented that enabled global coordination ad hoc, de facto, not de jure, and developed standards that are now globally used, some of the most standards that exist in the world. So there's something here that, that Raymond is is sort of touching on, isn't there? He's He's thinking about how something like Linux could arise from such completely different production modes as compared to, for example, Windows, which was uh, the other 
large you, operating system at the time, kids, if you haven't heard of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and we, and we should note that these Unix-like operating systems are kind of p- pretty dominant in terms of the devices that we use because it underpins uh, Android devices and actually all the, the Mac uh, yeah. family of devices are sort of uh, born out of a code that's sort of in that family as opposed to the Windows family of code, which is still very big and successful and Microsoft is still making quite a lot of money so we shouldn't we shouldn't entirely dismiss it either but no. what he does and, and let's go to these terms cathedral and the bazaar I mean the, the core premise and he jumps off from that plus and lots of other lessons but the core premise is look there are these two different modes of developing software and I hope in this conversation actually I'm quite interested in, in sort of teasing this out and seeing how far it might apply to other things but when it comes to software mode number one the cathedral mode a group of developers uh, who've got special superpowers, sit somewhere in private and they build this amazing piece of software and then they reveal it to the world. And so there's a formal release. We're now releasing this software to the world. And and this can work in both open and closed source software. And we should, should again, tease out that distinction that back in the good old days, uh, a lot of what you did was you built software and you compiled it into some executable code and the executable code went out to the world um, but the source code the stuff that you know makes that program work you kept super private and super secret to yourself and nobody else could access it so that was your kind of classic closed source mode your open source mode everybody can see the code that makes the program run but even within the open source world there wasn't a uniform model um, so you could build a open source product and yet still during the phase while you're developing it, you don't let anyone see what you're doing. You simply give them a, a finished product, a release version, and off you go. And then there's this new open source model, which Linux famously had taken up uh, and some other projects, where you continually released the code as you worked on it. Wow. <laughs> and you let everybody see what you were doing while you were working on it. Um, and what really, Eric teases out in this essay at the heart of it is like why would that model where you're releasing everything as you go produce a better outcome than the model where people sit in their cathedral and they they keep that code uh, private whether or not it's open or closed source until the moment at which they're ready to make a release I think it's interesting also for us to dig into how these two different production modes came about. I mean, the cathedral is pretty easy to see, right? It's it, it is closely related to commercial production. That's how you if you make um, if you make a complicated piece of electronics, that's how you make it. You make it in a room with other experts, and you sort of you don't release parts of it and ask people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a, there's a distinction at the root of all of this that I think is interesting, and I would argue that you can probably trace it back to to the early advent of the personal computer, the Apple II the rise of the hobbyists, as they were called in this famous letter. Do you remember the letter to hobbyists? Yes. Yes. I wonder if if you're tracing open source and you're tracing that mode of production back, don't you think you could trace it back to the fact that computing actually was open to anyone, to to hobbyists? And can you tell us a little bit about the letter to hobbyists? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the fact that people um, have these devices and that they're... so, So... go way back you know computing was something that could only be done on big and very expensive machines that were owned by organizations like universities and defense departments and very big corporations um uh, and and you had to get you know access to those that was the only way you could access it and then we went from this world to one where you know every individual could have a computing device in their own home 
and there started to be clubs where all of these people would get together and in their clubs they would uh, be able to exchange information with each other. They started to do things like writing the software that they wrote, those instructions they could write to home cassette tapes, which was a kind of radical new technology. Before that, you needed these massive, great big magnetic reel-to-reel tape things. This is kind of even before we get to things like floppy disks, which now seem any on ago. So they were writing to these uh, cassette tapes. They would swap the cassette tapes when they would meet up at these computer fairs. And then people could take that code and they could adapt it and, and, and sort of exchange it with each other. So that was kind of, you know, quite revolutionary. But then when you fast forward to the time when Eric S. Raymond is talking and Linux happens, he actually um, uh, puts the the credit uh, in particular to the, the rise of the internet. So we, we've got this um, home hobbyist thing where people are exchanging information, they're swapping cassette tapes. It's still quite limited. If you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, <laughs> there's probably a club there where you can all get together and you can do this stuff. Um, but, you know, actually Linus Torvalds himself probably sitting out in Helsinki on his own uh, in, in a community of one might find it quite difficult to, to sort of connect with people. And there are people all around the world who, who were not part of that um, uh, exchange of information. The internet comes along. And then suddenly you can form a global community of people all working on the same project. And really, really importantly, you can share the information about the project you're working on. You can share the source code pretty much in real time, uh, initially done through mailing lists. So it like, feels like an old technology now, but you can you can put the code into an email and pretty much in real time, it's asynchronous, but that you can send it out there and people have got that code and they can play with it and send stuff back to the mailing list. Um, that's a radical, radical shift from the world in which you have to be physically present to do coding with people. And that coordination, the ability to coordinate that you got through the internet also just sort of augments the tension between the hobbyists and the people who were producing software commercially. The the letter I mentioned early on yeah. was this letter from 1976 that Bill Gates wrote, a letter to hobbyists, in which, which he sort of, he says things like, uh, as the majority of hobbyists must be aware, most of you steal your software. And this notion of stealing and of sort of open and closed commercial hobbyists is then going to propagate into this new world where coordination is much more powerful and an open source for the first time is not i don't think that's right not for the first time but open source clearly is not derivative of commercial software but actually has its own innovative power and that's that's another thing that happens with the shift into to the internet isn't it yes yeah, so, so one of the advances of the open source model is that look if something has been developed openly in public then it is very obvious, or there's actually several advances. One is it's very obvious that you're not copying it from anyone else because everyone can see how you developed it. Where somebody just in the cathedral model, they turn up with their brand new program. It may be that they had taken some Microsoft code and decompiled it and whatever, the thing that Bill Gates would be concerned about. Um, but when you can actually see from version one through to the whatever version you're on, you can see how it was developed in public. It, it, you know, it's very obvious that there was a community effort to develop it. So that's great from a, a kind of copyright defensive point of view. Yeah. Or, or if somebody does think that somebody's sort of stolen the code, it's very transparent and obvious that that's happened. Um, there was another innovation that happened prior to this that was really important, which is something called the copyleft movement, which is a a licensing scheme uh, called the general public license and it's evolved a few times so since then again we have a whole episode on on, uh, on open source <laughs> yes. licensing but essentially what that said was it, it created a framework within which when people contributed to these projects 
they were making it clear that their contribution was not intended to be locked down and copyrighted. It was intended to be part of a project that should be freely usable and remain freely usable. And if anyone else took that uh, code, their products also had to be freely usable. So there was a really important sort of intellectual movement around licensing at the same time. You've got this stuff out in the public domain. And one other spin-off benefit, which which I think we'll come to perhaps in a future episode, is is um, in the world of patenting, that part of the notion of patenting, if you're seeking a patent on something, is that it, it shouldn't already have been invented by someone else. And of course, one of the great joys of this open source world is, you know, you've got these huge repositories of code out there doing things. And if somebody later comes along and tries to patent something that is is in common usage, because you can see, because there's these code repositories that show it's been done for years now, it's a great way of defending against the kind of spurious uh, attempts by people to kind of claim unique credit over something that everyone out there doing already. But so there's a whole, I think there's a whole other episode in there, isn't there, Nicholas, around that? But open <laughs> yes. source has all of these, I think, sort of transparency advantages in terms of you can see where it's come from. Uh, as well as some of the technical advantages, which Eric S. Raymond talks about, uh, particularly the sort of famous phrase that we're, we're, when there are enough eyeballs out, on something, then all bugs are shallow. Shallow. Uh, which yeah. is his critical observation. Yes. And so let's talk about that a bit, because it seems to me that these two different production modes, the cathedral and the bazaar, um, they, they have different advantages. Uh, you could you could argue that there are things that are better developed as cathedral in the cathedral mode and things that are better developed in the bazaar mode. Um, but the bazaar mode, what are the advantages, except for you just talked about all bugs being shallow with uh, enough uh, eyeballs to throw on them. But what are the advantages of the bazaar uh, that, that Raymond points to? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't. Um, I, I think we need to, to sort of dwell on that all bugs are shallow point for, for a moment there. That that you know, with software, the the worst thing that that can kind of happen is that a program behaves uh, wrongly. It, it screws things up once it's out in the public domain. You know, that's the worst thing for the programmer. That's where they lose uh, uh, credit. That's where actually, if you you know, as we talked about Microsoft being strong now, but where they had real problems uh, sort of 10, 15 years ago with around security issues. So those security issues basically were people being able to exploit bugs, things that the software programmers never intended to be in Microsoft software, particularly around their early web browsers, and and they were there, and that, that caused, you know, a major problem for their company. So, so bugs are one of the worst things that can happen and what's particularly difficult are deep bugs that nobody can kind of figure out. So the software behaves wrongly and you imagine the, actually there was a case in the UK that seems to be, this was actually quite tragic where software was rolled out to all of the post offices in the country and they ended up prosecuting a whole bunch. I mean, like, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people running post offices for allegedly embezzling money. And now it's subsequently turned out that that was a problem with deep bugs in the software, that the software developer said, no, 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 my software is perfect. And yet the software was inappropriately assigning money to people's accounts. And as a result, hundreds of people were prosecuted. Some went to prison, some sadly took their lives. So like sort of, you know, at the most extreme end of a deep bug, it's something like that, that, um, you know, is in there and causes real chaos. And you, you Never mind thinking about like air traffic control systems and yeah. safety critical systems. So we hate deep bugs. Uh, we want we want to not have them. And and so the open source model, this sort of bizarre model, you know, it is so important that what it does is make the bugs shallow. Uh, it allows lots of people to put eyes on them. 
uh, actually at the time the software is being written. Really importantly, Eric points out that, you know, a lot of those people, because they're not the original developers, they don't have the, the sort of blindness that a developer has. It's, it can actually be really quite difficult for a developer to see their own problems because they wrote the code. They're, they're sort of stuck in the mode of thinking that's how it should work. And yet someone else who's outside can go, I'm really surprised it's working like that. That that seems wrong, and that's probably where your bug is. Mm-hmm. He talks about the fact that it's a technically literate community that actually works on these projects, and so their observations are much better than user observations. So in, in a classic mode, you release the software model I described, the post office software goes out there, the users are the people in the post offices, so they say, I don't think this is working correctly, and the software developers go, no, 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 it's working right, we know, we're the experts, you're not. Now, what happens with an open source project in the bizarre model is the people looking at the thing are themselves experts. And they don't go, it's not working correctly. They say, it's not working correctly because in module X, we can see that it's adding up the numbers incorrectly. Therefore, you must go and look at module X. And that kind of criticism is so much better. That's what makes the bug shallow for finding them out. And then really importantly as well, he talks about the benefit of just the user engagement for continuing to kind of refine and improve the software. So as well as finding the bugs, the features that you have in the software, the way that you develop it changes quite dramatically if your users are fully involved, these expert users are fully involved in the development process because you've gone for the bizarre model. So in the cathedral, it's a little bit sort of take it or leave it. We're in our cathedral. We, we push out the software. You, you know, you tell us whether you like it or not, you buy it or you don't, and you go to another cathedral. In the bizarre model, it's much more, you know, I, I don't quite like the thing you've given me. Why don't you do it like this? And you're much more inclined to go, all right, then, <laughs> you know, if that's what you want, I'll change it. So you have a very different kind of conversation that actually leads to a significant change in the product that you're developing. Now, if we go back to the debate between open source, closed source, between the Cathedral and Bazaar at the time, I think one of the really interesting things that um, was argued against the, the, the Bazaar model was that, well, if everyone is responsible, then nobody is responsible. Yes. So how do, you, how do you think about responsibility and how do you think about power in the Bazaar? How do you think about who makes the final call? If I say this is a good piece of software or a good piece of code to include mm. in the software and you say it's not... How, what, talk a bit about this because this is this is where it becomes really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things he talked about, and this is different, is um, we put it this way: that the, the people in the bazaar may be wage slaves who are programming something because someone's paying them to program it. They don't enjoy it. They don't particularly care about the thing they're programming. They just have to do it because someone gives them a salary. Um, they're like, I guess, the the stonemasons chipping the gargoyles out on a oh, cathedral. Oh, the people in the cathedral. I think he said the bazaar. The cathedral. The people in the cathedral are the stonemasons chipping away. They yes. don't care about the gargoyle. They have to build the gargoyle, uh, chip away at the gargoyle because that's what the cathedral owner wants stick to the cathedral in the bazaar uh they're much more like you know the sculptor who is sculpting something that they care about and he talks about this he talks about good software begins with someone who has an itch that they want to scratch and he talks about the community of developers that help him build his fetch mail programmers again similarly people who actually really care about this fetch mail product it's going to solve a problem for them so we should recognize that critical distinction that certainly when it comes to sort of motivation and and a lot of the management questions it's the difference between a community where 
you're sort of more traditionally managing a group of people in the cathedral who who are there and have to be motivated and and driven and steered in a particular direction through through incentives other than just the act of creation and in the bizarre model where you've got a community of people ideally who are primarily motivated by the act of creation so that's what you know sort of really gets the motivation going and then within that community, again, I think he would say the decision making, which is a key point. And pe- people, I mean, essentially, sort of what he's saying is like, you know, if all the theorists were right, Linux wouldn't exist. <laughs> so, so sort of, so we kind of, so why does it exist? Because the people are very motivated to build it, and because they have figured out good decision making processes. And again, that partly reflects the fact that it tends to be a community of experts. So they are able to talk at a very expert level with each other and criticize each other's work. Um, so it's not, you know, uh, managers who who don't write code but think they know how to manage people, you know, versus coders. It's coders working with coders in the bizarre model. So there's a lot of that. Um, uh, and, and again, it's just extraordinary how these systems have developed. Again, partly we should give the credit to the internet. The internet, you know, what are the... It's not the internet itself. It's the way in which people use the internet. We often, you know, uh, pick up on the harms that they do. They'll coordinate harm with each other. The internet has actually pr- proved to be a very good tool for coordinating good, and it's and it is that real time communication. It's you know a lot of the tools uh, that people use to work together really help you to figure out how to do that. And that's evolved all the way from these early mailing lists where people did amazing things just based on mailing lists to, again, if people are really interested, they should go and have a look at a tool called GitHub today, G-I-T-H-U-B. Evolution, there have been many over the SourceForge, wasn't it, at times? There's been various sort of evolutions. But but you've developed these tools like this one called GitHub, which are optimized to help people make software together and and the tools help people to figure out how to make those decisions to make choices about whether they want to update the the software to have process in place that's not a kind of heavy management process but still is process for uh, in the language you use in software development is committing uh, changes to that code so there's a there's a whole set of internet based tools that in a way substitute for those traditional management uh, processes and and help these communities of like-minded willing developers to produce a product together ironically github was bought by microsoft isn't it these yes oh, 7.5 yeah. billion dollars so it's it's funny right we should talk about that yeah. later how the cathedral yeah. and bazaar are converging how they're coming closer and closer together i think that's important but on the decision making i do think that there's another thing we want to tease out as well and that is that being able to make a decision in the bazaar is dependent not just on your commitment and your expertise and everyone being nice to each other there's a little bit of that going on naturally but i also think it's a realization that you are going to have to be okay with a slightly wasteful production mode that there's yes. going to be stuff that falls by the wayside that some of the stuff you do is not going to be used that you know you're not going to be producing exactly to plan and i think it's best captured and this is something that david post writes a lot about in jefferson's booze where where he says it's best captured by the itf uh, whose motto was rough consensus and running code and if yeah. you think about those two components they're so expressive of how the bazaar works i think the rough consensus i think is actually the most important one running code is sort of the table stakes if you can't write running code then you're probably not going to be you know long in the bazaar i don't think um, but rough consensus is the one that really interests me 
the ability that humankind has not to sort of really come to a final and full consensus, but be fine with a rough consensus if something is working. That seems to me to be a, a very integral element of the bazaar as well. Yes, and and then there is this um, sort of I, I don't know uh, failsafe mechanism, protective mechanism, which is this notion of forking code. So if you if you disagree with the way a project is going, you can basically, particularly because of these licensing arrangements, you can typically take that code and create your own version. It's like so, so you don't have to. In some ways, if somebody is kind of awkward and not fitting with the consensus, and they're sufficiently awkward. You, they don't need to stay in your community and you don't need to keep them there. You can, they can go off and make their own version. And actually if it's good enough and this has happened, it may get rolled back in or it may become the dominant version over time. But you, you have these mechanisms where you've got consensus, but you've also got these safety valves where people can kind of go off and do something different if they want and, to. And not just because they're awkward. I, I would not argue with you over the awkwardness, yeah, but yeah. I think it's sometimes, sometimes it's also because you want to do a specialized piece of software for, say, embedded chips, or you want to, or you want to do something else that is just for mobile. Or you, and so the forking very much works like a speciation event in evolution, right? There's yes. a, a selection pressure, something new happens, and then boom, it explodes. And it's it's really clear if you look at if you look at, for example, uh, Linux as an operating system, there are tons of distros, distributions, right. and they're all very different. And so so that that seems to me to be another part of this rough consensus, that the rough consensus can actually lead to this this variation in the number of different outcomes that are available to the user at the end of the day. And that seems to be a good idea. Yes. And 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 actually just to come back to your point on on um you know software projects failing. So a lot of these things will will um fork off into the sunset and and not end up being used. And so a lot of the distros, I don't know if you used to buy these Linux user mags silly years ago and they would have like a, a million distros I occasionally find the CDs and have to clear them out. And you know many of those have died. Others have come through very strongly and 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 you've sort of clustered around some of the core ones. Um, but really interesting again I think uh, he he pointed out in one of the updates to the essays that you know, people will go, oh, yes, but open source is so wasteful. All of these, you know, all of this work gets done and these projects die, and that's terrible. But he points out that if you look at the traditional systems integrator type software development, um, many of those projects fail. <laughs> and we just sort of seem to ignore that. So we're applying different standards. And actually, they fail much more expensively. And I, I used to work in the National Health Service in the UK, and, and it just became an axiom like, oh, my God, here we go again, another multi-billion pound NHS IT project. And you're going to put all this money in, and it's got all those, it's a cathedral. It, my God, is it a cathedral? It's got all the traditional management techniques, people sort of sitting on top of this thing, and it fails. And and you compare that, you know, we've gone down the bizarre route. We might have kicked off a whole bunch of projects that failed. Some of them would have succeeded. I'm not sure we would end up wasting more money. But there's this differential standard that's applied sometimes of saying, you know, the traditional stuff is orderly and somehow we think it's always successful. And this sort of messy, bizarre world, uh, the failures are much more visible. Maybe that's the difference because it's all open. You can see when the project dies in in the commercial world and certainly in government world they'll try and kind of brush these failures under the carpet or or pretend their successes <laughs> while pouring more money into them that's a good point i think and I, maybe the failure are larger the failures are larger in the cathedral than they are in the bazaar that, that one yeah. one sort of core competitive advantage of the bazaar is that it managed to fail in small packets and so as it fails in smaller packages it actually is uh, then 
able to just to reverse back to an earlier version and then go forward in another direction. And so there's something about the nature of failure for a bazaar. If a bazaar fails, if sort of you your one part of the bazaar is not accessible, then the entire bazaar still lives. If some part of a cathedral fails and you're in it, you're in pretty yeah. dire straits, right? So there's something about the failure modes of these two uh, metaphors that also is quite interesting to dig into. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and those massive, you know, systems failures, I say that the, the ones that get into production and then fail, like the post office one I described, which is pretty terrible, but there are very many more that just never get into production. And then that itself can have consequences because there are delays and delays and systems are inefficient. Again, over the last year or two, uh, the, the extent to which governments or uh, well, health systems have you know, very rapidly um, uh, updatable uh, health record systems has been critical to, to combating uh, COVID. Um, and so, again, these big, big systems, you both want them to, uh, uh, you know, exist at scale. You want them to be well managed, but you also need them to be able to evolve very quickly in the face of changing circumstances. And actually, you'll find in many cases they can't. You know, they're too slow. Uh, it's the proverbial oil tanker, you know, turning in a new direction is too difficult. You, 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 know, you didn't tell us before you would want vaccination certificates. Oh, my God, that's three years before you can have them kind of thing. And, you know, that's not just going to work for us. Uh, classically, in the open source world, things will move much more quickly. And, and again, I haven't looked at this in detail, but I suspect that a lot of the tweaks and updates and things that we're now using in response to COVID will be tools that people have pulled in from the open source world, perhaps, and grafted onto, you know, more traditional IT systems, um, because that's where you'll have been able to get the the development done very quickly. And things like QR codes, readers and scanners, and things like that. There's like you know a huge pool of open source tools that have been developed over. The years for all of that which is now proving its worth i think in the in the more mainstream and the more cathedral-like environment yeah and and just as in you know in a, in the city or in a community or in a society we don't choose between bazaars and cathedrals they both exist at the same time uh, to a large degree now raymond and uh, a lot of the early discussion i think around open source was was not about complementarity but about substitution we should do open source instead of closed source etc that debate seems to have shifted now into a discussion about complementarity so what are the relative strengths of the cathedral model that that people sort of tend to have missed in the early debates do you think yeah, so, so I think there are, I mean, there, there's certainly some value in bringing a team together and getting them to work on a specific project in a focused way. I think some, some of the sort of traditional uh, benefits, I think, have been dismissed. So I think people would have said previously, well, it's security is really important. Actually, no, I think security works better in the open source model rather than in the in the closed source model. Um, so, so I don't think security washes, but, but bringing a team together to, you know, really tightly focused on a particular project works. Um, that same team could contribute their code back into the open source world, but the development of it, whether it ends up being in the open source or the closed source world, the development is a tightly knit team. Uh, in in um, software companies often call, do, call it doing a sprint. They're doing a sprint together. They're working on a particular project, uh, and they're not they're not spending a lot of time going out to people while they're working on that project. So I think that's really the core value is just like, I've got an objective. I need to do this thing. I'm going to lock a group of people in a physical or virtual room. They're going to go off and do it. In terms of the licensing, why would you, you know, continue to licensing the closest? Well, again, that is the, you know, the commercial considerations. Um, there's no, I, I don't think there's any kind of technical advantage in a sense. What you're saying is, 
from a technology point of view, if you accept the premise of the Cathedral and the Bazaar, it's it's you know very exceptional that uh, you will be able to make a case to say that keeping source code closed is technically beneficial. It's nearly always going to be technically less opt uh, less less good outcome. Um, but obviously, from a commercial point of view, you want to be able to exploit it. And and again, you can say there's lots of reasons why. Uh, um, you know, you're in again classic sort of model. would have this would have this debate around copyright and things like that. That you are you need to be able to exploit your code in order to be able to um, uh, uh, incentivize people to make more code and more tools of that kind. Right. And, and one of the other things that sort of occurs to me is that, that it seems to me that there are two different versions of the bazaar, the bazaar here. One is that that you're sort of you're, you're growing and building and, and collecting and, and sort of collaborating in the bazaar to build your software. And the other is that you build your software in the cathedral, then you gently release it into the bazaar. Yeah, and that seems to be that seems to be more and more common that, you know, even complex projects. And this is the other thing I'd like to sort of just tease out. I mean, it, for I'll now don the hat of the cathedral advocate and I say, a cathedral is much, much more complex than a bazaar in the sense that it's complex and ordered. It has much more order. And the other thing that I would add to that order that I think is interesting is that a cathedral takes 100, 200, 300 years to build. If you want to have a long-term project, isn't it better then to look at structured production modes like the cathedral? Yeah. If you're building something that you will, I don't know what kind of software project would, and maybe you will come back and say there are no such software projects. But if you're building something that you think will take 100 years to build, can you then really build it in bizarre format? Just be reliant on people coming in and out of the bazaar, contributing their piece, and then sort of fading into the sunset again? Or, or how do you think about the structure, complexity, order, and long-termism of the cathedral? vis-a-vis the bazaar as a temporary autonomous zone where things just happen. So I think you're right. They they are both working together. And I think we should we should look at the the major internet platforms as cathedrals. And and they, you know, there's there's a lot of um their structure, the the database structure, and actually, again, Eric S. Raymond talks about you know smart data structures work better with dumb code than smart code with dumb data structures. So, the data structures that sit inside a, a Meta or a Google or an Alphabet, I should say, Meta or Alphabet or <laughs> or, or a Amazon is still called Amazon, aren't they? Yes, they're not. They've not changed their name. Um, so, the data structures that sit inside these companies are proprietary, and in a sense, that's their real secret source that's the the stuff that they are building in their cathedrals it's around data and data structure the code that is used against that data is often pushed it just as you described they'll develop it and push it out into the bazaar and so there's there's lots of um, all these big database manipulation tools there's one called hadoop and various others these things that work on masses and masses of data like a lot of the software has been written by engineers living inside these cathedrals. And then what they've done is they've, they've written the software. They've recognized that one way of making the software better is to push it out to the public domain. There's no real commercial advantage in keeping it secret inside the company, uh, or at least if, if they perceive any kind of commercial advantage, it's outweighed by the security and other benefits of putting the code out into the public domain. So they'll do that with the code, which historically, so it sort of turns everything on its head. Historically, a Microsoft-type company would say, look, all of the money and the value and the secret source is in the code. Uh, the data is not ours. The data is with the users. And so we don't care about the data, but we really care about the code. 
you've now moved, I think. So these big cathedrals of the internet platforms are big cathedrals, a lot of money, a lot of resource. But all of the structure and the value lives in the data and in particular the data structures and how they think about working with that data. And they wouldn't want to give that away. They wouldn't want everyone to know how they do clever things with the data. Um, But the code that says, create a database file, run a search on the database file, give me some results, that they're really happy to put out into the public domain. You see that again with all of those major companies. So it's- I think I think it's one of the things that is most undervalued when you look at Alphabet or Meta or other companies, the amount of code that they put out in the public domain yeah. or in different kinds of open source licenses it doesn't have to be public domain. And I think I mean, it's millions and millions of lines of code for different things that are now available and open sourced uh, everywhere from, from advanced artificial intelligence applications to much more simple, simple applications as well. So yeah. there is a there is sort of a the cathedrals are producing bazaars. There's something there that's really interesting that they're connected. The other, the other, you know, again with my my cathedral hat on. The other thing I would note, and this this is a much more subtle argument, but I'm interested to see what you think of this. Is that cathedrals are beautiful, bazaars are not. Yes, beauty, aesthetics, the ability to do something that contains a single religion, something that has a single faith, a single narrative, and I, you can hear where I'm going with yeah, this. Yeah, right? yeah, that the exactly. apple, the oh, apple yes. would not be possible in the bazaar you can't yeah. but you can't you can't do apple in the bazaar so how how do you think about that yeah so so it's, it's yeah it's interesting they you know one of the criticisms of linux has always been that it's failed to produce a good desktop version or or people have failed to turn it into a desktop product uh, and yet, generally, so- the UI question in Linux has been alive. I mean, to be fair, there are good UIs in Linux, but it's it's been an issue. I think it's fair it, to say it has, and and I think it's again partly reflects that there's a that the effort is diffuse. There are lots of different sort of factions who support different UIs in Linux, and and again, to be candid, like the whole rationale of Unix originally was that it was a a sort of basic set of tools, uh, operating system tools that would be portable across any device. It was never it was never sort of intended uh, to produce a pretty UI, but it was to be a set of uh, tools that would make the machines run and make the data do what it's supposed to do on those machines. So, and, and then you add to that, as I say, lots of different camps who favor particular versions of UI and more pure and less pure versions of it. Um, uh, there's sort of issues around the fact that Again, from a licensing point of view, if you're a purist, you don't want to use anything that might possibly have any kind of restrictive license. And so a lot of sort of graphical elements and fonts and things might be out of bounds because they're they're subject to some kind of creative uh, copyright type restriction. So that's part of it. And, and yeah, so Apple is the classic example who've taken a Unix-like engine and built uh, a very beautiful operating system on top. Uh, interestingly, when we come to the Android world, um, where, again, it's a essentially a portable Linux type thing that sits underneath as an open source model, there you actually see a real mixed bag. Uh, it's perhaps a bit more Linuxy. So you do, you know, you can make, there are beautiful UIs on Android, but a lot of complaints actually. The complaints typically that that a, a mobile phone operator has taken what was a really nice and simple UI and kind of messed around with it because they want to put their own special features on and it becomes kind of um so there are some issues there and you know people will compare it with an iphone which is unified so there are these issues of uh, all of the developers rowing in a similar direction which does tend to create these beautiful uis 
and then the sort of ugliness of not doing that. Um, so I think probably today we're still even in 2021. There are you know really nice usable versions of uh, Linux desktop UI, Ubuntu. If people have downloaded it, is you know pretty usable, but it doesn't have the like you know gloss of that. I mean, the Chromebook that I'm sitting talking to you on now is much more sort of pretty and integral and uh than actually my ubuntu machine that i have over the wire i feel more comfortable using this i choose this uh, for a reason um so you're right the bizarre i think maybe that's where the analogy does hold more than perhaps was intended at the time that wasn't why he wrote it but i think we can sit there and go you know this the 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 real wild open source world uh does not produce the same kind of elegance for the user that the cathedral does and we're still in a mode where we all if we sit back have to say look most of the upfront uh, elegance l- comes out of these cathedrals rather than coming out of uh, the bazaar directly and it, it strikes me that a cathedral, uh, just as Apple in a certain extent, I suppose, is much more the expression of fewer people's intentions. Uh, yes. The bazaar is the sum of a lot of people's intentions, but the cathedral, uh, the Apple computer I'm running now, uh, the operating system, the, the, the really um, sort of concentrated expression of a single individual's intentions that you find in the cathedral is different, which means that if you sort of really dig beneath Raymond's argument, you have an argument about human creativity and the different kinds of human creativity. One, you could argue that the the cathedral uh, is the theory of the genius, right? And you could argue that the bazaar is the theory of this evolutionary creativity that every single one of us has and we can all contribute to something with, right? There's there's, there's almost like you have romanticism in the cathedral and you have some kind of postmodernism in the bazaar. It's, it's, um, yeah. it's an ideological difference between the two, too. It is, an, and I think you recognize as well that um, version 0.1 of a software project typically does take a single creative mind or a very small group of creative minds. So you've got to have something to work off. And uh, it's the classic sort of design by committee, isn't it? Was it? Uh, yeah, uh, which is where it can get really bad. Horse design by a committee or whatever. You know, it's that sort of thing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's um, that you, you, you know, design by committee is not great. Uh, uh, but improvement by committee can be <laughs> so. So I think you know version one of something or 0.1 will be somebody's uh, genius. Actually, Linus Torvalds again being another example that it took his dedication to get this thing off the ground. Having got the thing off the ground, he was the first to say, "Well, now I'll kind of you know um, haul in a whole group of other people. Now we've got an idea of where it's going to make it better." Um, so there is that that sort of combination. When you then want to take the creativity to this sort of higher level, uh, then arguably, you know, keeping it in the bazaar, uh, keeping it in the cathedral, I'm going to keep getting these right, keeping it in the <laughs> cathedral, uh, you know, if we want to take it to a sort of higher level of elegance, uh, that may be something that we need to, to do um, because it's just going to, it's going to work uh, more effectively that way. And and there's also this notion of a single story, I think, around the, the cathedral. That the cathedral expresses it can carry a lot more brand than the, the bazaar can. I think Linux is a strong brand. I think Ubuntu, all the others, KDE. I, I think there are good brands, but if you compare them with Apple, they're they're sort of they're they're left far far behind so there's something about the cathedral that allows for the concentration of the narrative as well it seems um the narrative around the cathedral is much much stronger uh, which i think is a is both an advantage and a risk 
Yeah, and, and partly reflects money. I mean, let's just be yeah. <laughs> a, you know, they've got. It's a very model. expensive to buy a cathedral, you're right. <laughs> and, and you know, you can build a brand with money, and you can. You, there's a lot you can do with money. So if you've created a money making machine, and again, we should say in the open source world is interesting. Um, you know, there, there is a you can both give your software away and find commercial opportunities. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. And again, some people. Sometimes surprised by this, you know, this idea. Well, if I give everything away, it's the end of economic life and commerce. Well, it isn't. Um, but you need to figure out where you're going to make your money from. And in some cases, p- people made money by through services. So we we give away the software product. But if you want a a supported version of it, then you're going to give us money for that. So that's one way of doing it. So it's not for itself. And I say actually. The real money, though, as we've seen, is in other things. In the case of Apple, it's hardware that is well, hardware-software combination that's sufficiently attractive that people will pay a significant premium over other people's devices. That brings in their money. And in the case of the platforms, it's these data-driven uh, activities that they're able to do. And because they've got that money, they can build the brand. It's actually quite hard for an open-source project on its own <laughs> I mean, the project itself is unlikely to pull in that much money, and even these kind of supported projects tend not to. Uh, as you can see, some some of these products go through an evolution where they go from raw, or if you like, pure open source software, just come and take it, into one of these quasi-commercial models where there's some kind of commercial operation on the back. So somebody like MySQL did this for a number of years where the MySQL was, a, I think, a Swedish company again, wasn't it? it was yeah, a, yeah, yeah commercial operation and then eventually i think they've been bought by oracle haven't they so they and then eventually uh some of them just go in they then get bought up or github again they go through these iterations where the open source product you know there's a limit there's almost a ceiling to how much money can be made in these supported services type models uh and then the those commercial corporations will then get bought up by uh, a bigger commercial uh, organization and brought into that. There's another way to think about this that I think is really interesting and I think actually is also an argument for the bazaar, which is that the bazaar is deeply generative, right? You have all these code, all these open source projects, but in order to really unlock the value in them, you need to build on top of them the organization responsibility and liability that a company has. So on top of open source, you can build, you know, I remember Red Hat was one of the companies I think was bought up by IBM lots of years ago. And where you had tons of different companies that were essentially helping people build Linux systems on the basis of open source. So the bazaar is generative in the sense that it creates new economic opportunity through this sort of by using the available installed base of open source. Now, to sort of flip the metaphor, you're unlikely to see a cathedral generate new and invite new religions. It's going to be one religion in the cathedral, and that's basically it. So they're deeply non-generative in another sense. So there's there's something about that too, sort of that you where you where you look at the bazaar and says it can't be long-term things, you're underestimating what it actually is doing. It is not, it's not for the individual project. The individual project can be built on top of the bazaar, hmm. which is where the metaphor starts to be a little bit shaky because you don't build things on tops of bazaars because they fall <laughs> apart. But there's something, you know, what happens in a bazaar can generate a lot of value outside of the bazaar. The bazaar is connected to trade networks to sort of to try to find some kind of expansion of the metaphor, right? Yeah. So, so I think you're right. So I think it can... Um... <laughs> The, the bazaar can be threatening to the cathedrals, so it can, it can create an alternative religion. But again, it, it's often the the combination of the two. So, so if we look at some of the software products, um, uh, both in mobile and in in uh, uh, online 
workspaces and work products, a company like Alphabet bought in uh, products often that have been developed in the bazaar uh, for uh, creating it sort of Google uh, work work related products that would end up being threatening to Microsoft's cathedral or it's a mobile phone type product, which would end up sort of challenging. In that case, actually, it was Nokia back in the day that was being challenged by that. So you, you'll often get the, the challenges to the cathedrals will arise in the bazaar because they are, as you say, plugged in. They're generative. They're, they're trying novel things. But in order to become threatening to other to the cathedrals, it may be that will only occur at the point at which they're actually adopted by I say when I say bought because the software is often you know remains open in many cases uh, it may maybe that the software is not closed but that the 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 weight of one of these other cathedrals gets behind a particular direction in terms of the software and that's what then allows it to take another cathedral so this question of openness and again we talked about Microsoft a few times in the conversation it's it's been really curious to see the transformation in Microsoft from a company that was hostile to all of the open source uh, models and bizarre type development to one which, as I understand now, I think I can run a Linux container on my Windows computer with no problem. And there's a, you know, Microsoft is much more open to uh, allowing things generated in the bizarre to come into its world, perhaps having, having, uh, Sort of spectacularly sort of missed that first thing that was being developed out there, which was Netscape Communicator. Uh, uh, now it's much more open to the idea that these products can be, you know, there can be a sort of uh, movement between the two. I think the ones that will fail in this world um, are the cathedrals that try and retain, you know, walls around them and remain uh, either dismissive of or uh, resentful or attempt to sort of squash things that happen in the bazaar that threaten them um, because the things that happen in the bazaar I think are as you described they, they've got long tentacles uh, and I think it, it's almost impossible to keep them out if they're good they're going to come you know yeah, and today's situation to move on to that is really interesting because you have Microsoft Edge, that's an open source browser built essentially on on parts of um, other open source projects, including uh, pieces from Chrome. And you have Android, the open source system. You have open source being included in and underpinning some of the cathedrals. So, so what has happened since Raymond wrote this book is essentially we've seen a merging of the bazaars and the cathedrals. The cathedrals are producing a lot of new content for the bazaars and the bazaars are underpinning the cathedrals by generating new things new they can come up with new um new stones that can then be incorporated in the cathedrals over time so the, the is it fair to say that raymond has sort of when he he makes the point of course and you need to do that if you're writing a book or if you're giving a talk you want sort of a distinct metaphors but if we were going to say go back to the text now and see what our time looks like you could say that they've converged deeply into to a much more more, um, much more uh, sort of mutually beneficial uh, relationship. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you'd have to say that he was right in predicting that the open model would prove to be very strong and very effective. You know, he was writing at a time when that was not a given. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's uh, a very fair point. You know, and there were people saying this Linux thing will never catch on. There's, uh, there's a, yeah, Microsoft actually uh, had a whole bunch of servers i remember installing them i can't i can't remember what the name i mean sql server survived but the and um uh, exchange server survived but there's a whole bunch of different things you had to install that 
you know, uh, and this Linux thing is not going to catch. It has caught on. I think he correctly predicted that, you know, the real strengths of this bizarre model. Um, it, it doesn't mean the cathedrals have gone away, but I do think, arguably, if you look at the software that is in use around the world today by all of us all of the time, you know, the the bizarre developed quota is huge and and you know surprisingly big if you went back to the early 90s and you said that was going to be the case i think most bizarre developed or cathedral developed and bizarre available uh, how, how do you yeah i would say um often bizarre developed with big chunks provided by cathedrals and support mm. provided by cathedrals but the dominant model the model is the open the literally open so it's you know it's, it's sitting there in a github repository or some equivalent where everybody can come and have a look at it and it may be that a bunch of the active developers on that project work in a cathedral uh and it may be that there you know that there's a lot going in there but these are they are bizarre projects in the sense that the code is out there and it's open and it's being developed in real time by a community. I think that's right. But I wonder, I, I mean, this is a really interesting question of fact, I suppose, and I don't know the answer to this, but I would be willing to bet that the majority of the bizarre produced software is actually produced by developers sitting in cathedrals. Yeah. If you look at if you look at the number of codes, I would say the, the sort of the the vast massive majority of the percentage of code is being developed by people who are sitting in you know cathedrals. If we say companies are cathedrals, which yeah. sort of don't you think that's true? I, I think so. But it, and again, that it's the extent to which. So if we go back to what he was talking about previously, the people in the company would have sat there, uh, completely cut off from the rest of the world, building that software, and then released it to the world. I think that still happens sometimes, but a lot less. And that, that was the cathedral model he talked about. So it is a lot more, even when you're working for a big company, when you sign up for an open source project, you're signing up under the terms of that project. You're signing up under the licensing right. and the protocol. The rules of the bazaar apply. You can't come. And in fact, that would you know cause ructions. <laughs> if you went into a project and you said, well, I work for a big company, therefore we're now just going to like take take the code off to my little gang of people in the company and give it back to you. It happens at times, but that's not the way you know, this is expected to work and that's not good behavior. Um, so I think it's a lot more of the case. Yeah, a lot of the people working on open source projects are being paid by cathedrals. That's where they get their salaries from. But I think the culture is very strong. And I remember the people I used to work with, the open source advocates in in the company, I'm actually, some of the work I'm doing at the moment, I'm working with some developers who are passionate about this. And, uh, and if you, if you, you know, they believe this, they believe that the open source model is so much better. Uh, than the closed model for their own development. And they want to be part of that community and share their code with the community. And I think if a cathedral said, no, no, we want you to go into the cathedral crypt and keep it all secret for a while, I'm not sure that would work for anyone <laughs> in this world. And so one of the other things that we haven't addressed, but I think is is, is increasingly important, is that we, we have talked about the internet as this great coordination mechanism, etc. We talked about cathedral and bazaar, these different models for producing software. And I, I think one of the things that has changed a ton since Raymond wrote his books is where the computing happens. 
Yeah. So the shift over to the cloud, in a sense, seems to be what has made what you just described possible, because there's now still a new point of uh, accountability. And that accountability is the cloud providers who are letting you run the code on their service. And, and if it works and it's sort of everything is still the way it should be, those cloud providers are also providing a lot of the bazaar software. And so what you have is this weird situation where, where he described the world where open and closed was about what was running on your individual computer. But what we're looking at now, what's much more interesting is what's actually running in the cloud. How how would you unpick that shift in computing vis-a-vis Raymond's text? Yeah, so, so I, think, I mean, what cloud computing's done, I think, uh, is on lots of different things. But one thing it's done is to kind of s- standardize, uh, in a sense, the platforms that are available. So you can go... You know, if you're a developer now, again, very different world, you can go to one of pretty much any of the major cloud providers and they have a whole array of standard machines that they can spin up that will have a known set of software on them. Again, typically, the toolkit that you want is an open source toolkit. It's a bizarre developed toolkit. Um, And so that has changed the world that, you know, to go from when we talked way back when that you know it was big institutions that for a lot of money would give you a slice of time on a time-shared computer almost reverse now to where i could sit here at home in london and i could say i would like you know 20 different virtual machines with different flavors of linux and windows and whatever on them spun up i could do that in in the next half hour and they would be up and running and it wouldn't cost me very much money at all so i think that's kind of fundamentally changed the development environment has changed the way that people can contribute to things. Again, you just think from a practical point of view, when it was expensive to create these environments, you know, I might write some software, but I might not have the wherewithal to run it. <laughs> it might not have been able to actually run the software that I'd written because it required a particular kind of configuration. Now that's very unlikely to happen. I can say I can have pretty much any virtual machine for any kind of a computing device I want sort of set up instantly. You've got these amazing development environments uh, where you can you can emulate an Android phone and an iPhone and all this sort of stuff on, again, either on your computer or in the cloud. There's all sorts of stuff you can do that that uh, now makes this a lot easier. So it's just it's opened the world up. So that community of people who can now play in the bazaar, contribute to the bazaar, trade in the bazaar, the potential community is much larger. Perhaps now the limitation which again maybe another subject for future debate is around um you know sort of higher order computer computing skills computer science skills and so on which which there is a limited supply of um but if somebody you know that the physical and cost barriers to contributing are are so low now because of the way that the cloud structure works uh the barriers that left perhaps are knowledge barriers uh and expertise barriers so cathedrals and bazaars that i think that that is a uh, i i would argue that you have shown that it's a text well worth revisiting and yeah. thinking about and trying to figure out how it actually fits into the current time um what, it's also very short the, it's very short it's also very short yes yeah. which is <laughs> freely available on the internet <laughs> you can buy the book or you can access it for free <laughs> yes it would be very surprising if it was only available as something you could buy yes but so uh, so with that i think we can conclude this session um, and you can find this podcast on your website which is www.regulate.tech thank you so much and thank you for listening tune in uh, for our next episode thank you so much mm-hmm.